Hello and welcome everybody to what is the last lesson of the school year. And this lesson is going to be on conflicts in the Middle East, specifically looking at the Arab-Israeli conflict. You want to please make sure that you have access to your Google Classroom uh, page and that you have everything listed on what you're going to need for this final lesson. Let's actually take a look at that before we continue. So let's see, we got three last sections here for decolonization. Hopefully you've completed the section on India. That was two weeks ago. You've done the lesson, <clears throat> excuse me, on African independence, parts one and two. And then you are concluding here with conflicts in the Middle East. You are going to need your chapter 18, section four textbook PDF file. Please make sure that you do scroll down to locate the pages 583 to 589. That'll help you with this part. You have this podcast you're listening to as a set of uh, like a set of notes. We'll be looking at some background information on the conflict. You have a reading called the Balfour Declaration, which we'll be reading together in just a moment. And you'll have some questions. I think there are about three or four questions to answer off of the declaration. Uh, then you have a chapter 18, section four, conflicts in the Middle East, Google Doc. That's 50 points, just like the declaration questions are 50 points. You want to submit both of those when you're finished. Uh, this specific sheet is going to go along with the textbook, so you'll need the textbook for that. And then the last two parts, you have middle ground video, can Israelis and Palestinians see eye to eye? And then the last one is middle ground video questions. I think there's four questions that have been put together on a Google Docs. That's also 50 points that you want to make sure that you submit. So in total, 150 points for this last section. Uh, there is also going to be a decolonization quiz that is complete and it will be issued when this lesson is um, also uh, released. This quiz has three parts. The last three parts, you know, this is not necessarily a final, but I guess you can kind of think of it as a final. It's the, the main quiz for the last three parts. So it'll have questions on India, Africa, and the Middle East, this part that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, I think it's 47 points. And then there's a final extra credit question there at the very end. That's worth three points. You want to make sure that you answer. After we've completed the section on the Middle East, this lesson and the three parts are due on the 25th. That is next Monday. Uh, I know Monday is a day off. So if you want to tell yourself, well, I'll turn it on the 26th, that's fine. Uh, but from the 25th, or the 26th, however day you want to look at it, because Monday is Memorial Day, you have until June 1st to submit any late assignments. So if you missed an assignment from the period of time that we were out, let's say quarter um, quarter four, uh, any of the things that we've been completing during the time of this uh, COVID pandemic, please make sure that you turn it in. Uh, even if it's a it's an assignment around the time that we were still in class, if it is your World War II packet that you need to submit, uh, please please do so. That's all you have to do is just snap some photos and email them to me, and I'll absolutely take it. I think there's a handful of you guys who still owe me that one. Those are that's big points, right? That's like 700, 800 points. That's a big difference between a C and a B, or a D or an F and a and a C. So make sure you get those in. All right, let's take a look at the PowerPoint. Make sure you have that open. It's conflicts of the Middle East or in the Middle East 2012. And here, here we go. All right, so uh, what we're looking at today is conflict, a conflict that dates back 
Um, I mean, you might even think about this as being biblical in proportion, um, proportions, but what we're looking at here are is the main conflict in the Middle East that affects our contemporary world, not just the Middle East itself, but also a lot of what we here in the United States deal with when it comes to terrorist uh, around the world and why it is that certain parts of the world don't like us all too much. Um, in this conflict, the United States does have a closer partner or an ally. Um, and perhaps because we have chosen that ally and we chose we choose to support the ally and provide the ally with weapons and funding, <clears throat> that means that the other side is not necessarily too happy with us during this conflict. And so oftentimes through propaganda, um, terrorists are born and bred and eventually they are, these people are propagandized against not only one side of the conflict, but eventually us. And so we'll, we'll look at the early stages of the conflict. We'll look at some of the events that took place in the Arab-Israeli war, uh, wars of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then look at how things started to change towards the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, and if this is a conflict that will ever have a resolution. All right, so if you guys are looking at the second second slide, it's going to say warm up, answer the following question. And this is just kind of a proposed question to you, so you don't have to type it out or write it out anywhere. How does one show ownership of an object? You know, how do how do you show somebody that you own the property that you own, the television that you have in your room, the cell phone that you hold in your hand, right? How do you show that you own that object? And you might say, well, I have a receipt, right? I purchased this. This is my product. I have a receipt. Or maybe you made it. You created it. Um, you might say, well, the law says that possession is nine-tenths of the law. And so if I possess it, then majority of the law says that it is mine. I own it. What about land? How can you show that land is your possession? And I don't necessarily mean maybe if you purchased a house, you might have the deed to the property that you own. But how does a people or any people say this land is my land? How is it that, uh, let's say, uh, Germany, Germans can say this land of Germany is our land. This bordered area belongs to us or Portuguese or Spaniards or English or Italians or Brazilians or Mexicans or Americans or Canadians. How, how exactly does one show ownership of land? And when that land is contested by multiple groups, two or more groups, that share a common interest and a common history in that land, how do you determine who's the rightful owner of that territory? So if you notice the second bullet point here, it says if two groups argue about the property, uh, the proper ownership of a common territory, what would you take, uh, what would be some key information that you would take into consideration before you awarded one side the territory? All right, so let's say we have two groups here that are arguing the case saying, no, this land is my land. No, this land is my land. And they're kind of this tug of war battle. What could be some things that you take into consideration before you eventually say, okay, this side or that side are the rightful owners of the land. Right, well, you might look at history. You might ask yourself the question, well, who was here first? Um, well, is there any evidence that you were here first? Um, who lives currently on the land? Um, well, if we're looking at both people living on the land, which population has the larger amount of people who live on their land? There are definitely questions that we can ask, and maybe those answers might help us determine in our mind 
who is the rightful owner. But the problem here with this conflict is that many of the questions that are proposed about land ownership between Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians, or Israelis and Arabs, oftentimes the answer is straight on correct for both sides. And when the answers are correct for both sides, and both sides can show that they have existed on this land, it becomes even increasingly difficult to say who is supposed to be the right owner of this territory. If you guys go to the next slide, you're going to see the map of the area that we're talking about here in the Middle East. This is the land or the nation of Israel. If you uh, look a little bit uh, deeper into the map, uh, you're going to notice that there is a green area right in the middle of the screen. And it's kind of hard to see. There's some slashes going through it. And then um, that is called the West Bank. That is currently the area where it is predominantly controlled by Palestinians. And then towards where Egypt, if you follow the uh, the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, where Egypt and Israel meet, there's another green area that has slashes going through it. That is known as the Gaza Strip. That is also a predominant uh, Palestinian area. And so the conflict that we're looking at today deals with the people of Israel or Israelis, who are predominantly Jews, uh, and the Palestinian Arabs that live in the areas of the West Bank the Gaza Strip, and also live in Israel itself, as well as the conflict that incorporates even larger areas like the nation of Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran, all these nations that surround Israel. And so this is the location in question. Okay. Now, let's go back to that argument that we were having about whose land is the, does this belong to. And so the two predominant uh, people who dictate or argue or you know, make their arguments that this land is their land, the land of Palestine, Israel, Israel, Palestine, the section of the uh, of the Middle East is their land, are Jews on one side and Arabs on the other. Now, we can get kind of sticky in a, in a situation here because you can say, okay, wait a second, they're not necessarily all Jews. So you might say instead of Jews, Israelis, and instead of Arabs, you might say they're Palestinian Arabs. Now you might say Arabs in general, or you might say Jews in general. But what we want to make sure we, we note here is that what we're talking about here is kind of the larger argument between two peoples, Jews by a religious uh, term, as well as a, um, a cultural term of being Jewish, and then Arabs, all right, of being of an Arabic background. But those terms themselves do not necessarily mean nationality, right? Because we're looking at nationality, you could be a Jordanian Arab or a Lebanese Arab or a Syrian Arab or an Iraqi or whatever. So you, you have the national base of the Arabs, but the Arab people are Arabs, you know, regardless of what nation they live in. And that would be the same thing with, let's say, Jews. Jews um, could be Jews living in Israel, but on a national term, we would call them Israelis. But in Israel, you have Arabs that live there, and you have Christians that are not Jewish and not Arabs uh, of different backgrounds. Um, so it's it's one of those arguments when we start using terms that we want to make sure we open our mind. It's not just a concrete term for Jews and Arabs. You can also say 
Palestinians and Israelis or Israelis and Palestinians. So let's look at the, the Jews as far as what their arguments are for why this land belongs to them. Number one, if we're looking at it from a religious perspective, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament states this land belongs to the Jewish people, that Yahweh determined this area from the waters of the west to the rivers of the, or the river of the east, from the mountains of the north to the desert of the south, that this land is going to be given to the people of Yahweh, Yahweh's people, the Jewish people. And we're going back to biblical standards of um, the the Ten Commandments. My apologies, I had a total brain fart right there. Uh, The Ten Commandments and Moses uh, leading the, um, the people from Egypt in trying to find a locate uh, a location in which to live where they wandered in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights until finally um, this land of what would be around the area of Jerusalem uh, was given by Yahweh to the Jewish people. They had found their homeland. Um, 3,000 years ago, another point that is argued oftentimes by Israeli or Jewish perspective is that, um, is that the Jewish kings ruled the region uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, And so you have a state that was built in which there was a Jewish um, political control. Kings ruled that area. So Jews can argue that there was political control, not just that we lived on that land, but there was political control there. The land is considered to be holy by Judaism. So there's a lot of religious connection there. Once again, if you're looking at biblical uh, or religious text, the Torah states so, and this land is considered to be holy by the Jews. And then artifacts have been found there dating back to biblical times that showed evidence that Jews have inhabited the land. Now let's look at the Arab side. Arabs have inhabited the land for just as long. They've been in the area with Jews almost since the very beginning. Jews were kicked out. This is an argument that's oftentimes used by Arabs. Jews uh, Jews were kicked out by the Romans um, during what is known as the Despora. Um, that once the Jews were kicked out, Arabs started ruling the territory in about 135 AD or Annus Domine or um, in the common era. And so once the Jews were out, Arabs began ruling that area. So much like the Jews say, we have kings of these areas. Well, the Arabs can say, well, we started ruling this territory in, in um, 135 AD. The city of Jerusalem is also considered to be one of the holy cities by Islam. And many Arabs are Islamic. That doesn't necessarily mean that all Arabs are Islamic. Uh, but you also have a religious connection for these people in uh, Jerusalem. And then artifacts have been found dating back to biblical times, showing evidence that Arabs have also inhabited this land. So by artifacts, by religion, by rule, by timeline, both of these people seem to have been here for just as long. And it's an argument that goes back and forth. You'll have one group that'll go off into the deserts or into the city and uh, they'll say Jerusalem, they'll dig up a couple of parts and They'll find an artifact that happens to be the oldest artifact ever found. And it says that Jews were here first. And then uh, um, Palestinians might do a dig of their own and they'll come up with uh, evidence that shows that, no, it's just as long or even longer back. And it, it becomes one of these arguing points to say, well, look, whoever can find the oldest artifact then is right to say that this land be, uh, belongs to them. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. Going on to the uh, the next slide. Uh, the Jewish despera and, and beyond. So Jews were kicked out by the Romans, but not all Jews were kicked out by the Romans in uh, 135 AD. 
And at that point, many of the Jews that were kicked out of the Middle East started settling throughout the world, mostly in Europe. And as European nationalism started to increase, well, I shouldn't even say nationalism, uh, anti-Semitism, the birth of Christianity started to increase, that meant that Jews were oftentimes the target of anti-Semitic sentiment, feeling, um, racism. And so um, Jews were increasingly treated as second-class citizens or even worse, right? I think we talked about this even during the Holocaust, right? That during the Black Death, they, they were they were uh, blamed for t- um, poisoning the water, even though Jews were dying at the same rate. Uh, they had to wear yellow identifying stars in certain areas of Italian ghettos during the Renaissance. This, this is nothing new. They were called Christ killers during or after the crucifixion as a way uh, of Christians to make themselves feel better, that they have like kind of this us versus them mentality. We Christians are the majority. They Jews are the minority. So it's easy to pick on. Well, with the increasing rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and Western hatred towards Jews, many Jews started to join a movement known as the Zionist movement or Zionism. And that movement was meant to find a homeland for the Jewish people. Uh, Jews and Zionists were being tired, were tired of being treated as second-class citizens uh, in Europe. And so they wanted to find a homeland of their own. And that's exactly what the Zionists intended to do. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, many, many Zionists actually went to or um, went on to uh, maps or would pull out maps of the world and start asking questions like, okay, well, where can we go? If we're not wanted in Europe and we're not wanted here or there, where can we go? And they looked at parts of Africa. Nigeria, I think, was one. Uh, Madagascar was another. And then they started asking the questions, well, well, why are we looking at parts that we have no historical connection to? Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at the, the Torah and the Old Testament. You know, this is the land that Yahweh uh, told us about. And so maybe um, this could be uh, the land that we, we settle. And at the time when the Zionist movement was uh, increasing, that land was owned, the land of present-day Israel and Palestine was owned by the Ottoman Empire. And so the, uh, the Ottomans had that section in particular. I can't remember what, what exactly it was called, but uh, um, that area of the, the, the zone of Palestine was owned by the Ottomans. And many Jews could move into the area and purchase territory. A lot of that territory was very expensive and uh, not a lot of natural resources and water in the area. But what the Zionists were hoping to do was to find an area to carve out of their own in what was the land that Yahweh had promised to the Jewish people and try to get away from the hatred of uh, Europeans, the hatred of the West, and get away from anti-Semitic feelings. And so Zionists started to settle increasingly, not huge amounts, but increasingly started to settle the area of Palestine that was owned by the Turks. Um, And if, if you notice the date here at the very bottom, 1917, 1917 is the second to last year of the First World War. And there is a major mix-up that ends up happening over here. Um, the people of Palestine, right, because the Ottoman Empire is fighting on behalf of, um, of Germany, the British, who are the enemy of the Germans, go into parts of the Middle East and start stirring up nationalistic feelings amongst the Arab people to say that the Ottoman Turks are not Arabs, and the Arabs are not Ottoman Turks. And if the Arabs are to push out the Ottoman Turks from this territory, this land, this land uh, should belong to the the Arabs. This should be your own territory. 
And so with nationalist feelings starting to be stoked, the fire is being stoked, eventually many Palestinians join the British in an attempt to kick out the Ottomans during the war and eventually have their own land, this land that would become, not to say it would become some sort of multi-Arab uh, land, but eventually it could be divided up into Syria and Jordan and Palestine and, and Egypt and so on and so forth. And so that this becomes, 1917 becomes a major year in the conflict, maybe year one of the conflict. Because before 1917, before this, the First World War, it's mostly been Jews, single Jews or small groups of Jews that have migrated, traveled to this area of Palestine, purchased land, very expensive land, uh, in order to settle it to get out of anti-Semitic Europe. But 1917, there, there becomes a major point here for the, the Jews, as well as a major contesting idea for the Palestinians. So if you guys go to the next slide, you're going to see 1917, and you're going to have the reading that you guys want to make sure you grab a hold of, and that is going to be the Balfour Declaration. And then there's a little cutout picture here that just says the Balfour Declaration questions. So by 1917, Jews began to increasingly immigrate to Palestine, and by that point, it's actually ruled by the British. Right? The Ottoman Empire has been kicked out of the area. Eventually, in 1918, the Ottomans are going to surrender. That land becomes controlled by two victorious allied countries, the French and the British. They become mandates of the Treaty of, uh, of Versailles. And so England issues what is known as the Balfour Declaration. And this is maybe the first step that increases tensions between Arabs and Jews. All right, if you can please locate that actual reading, if you guys can uh, locate it on one of the Google Docs, let's take a moment to read through it, and then let's go through the questions and see what we could find as far as some answers. So Balfour Declaration, the Google Docs, it says, Sir Arthur James Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, wrote the following letter to Lord Lionel Rothschild, a Zionist leader, on November 2nd, 1917. Lord Rothschild replied, quote, I can assure you that the gratitude of 10 million of uh, 10 millions of people will be yours for the British government has opened up by their message, a prop uh, prospect of safety and comfort to large mass of people who are in need of it. End quote. What do you think were the pros and cons of the Balfour declaration? So once again, this is a declaration by the British, by the British government uh, to concerning land that they now own or control at the end of World War I, 1917. So it says, Foreign Office, November 2nd, 1917. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government, so the King of England, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations as has, uh, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. Now there's a T missing there, but it's cabinet. Right? So it's saying here that the King and his government agree with Jewish Zionists. They, they have sympathy. They understand the wants of a Jewish homeland and to, to have a piece of their own uh, piece of territory for themselves. And that the government is nodding saying, yes, we agree um, to your, your plans to have a Jewish homeland built here. Continuing, it says his majesty's government view with favor, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, right? Facilitate to make facile, easy. We're going to make this easier. So not only is England bowing their heads and saying, we believe uh, or we agree in the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but we also, the British government will also help you in achieving this idea. 
It being clearly understood, however, that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political uh, status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So there is a clause there. It says that his majesty will agree in the prospect of building a Jewish homeland and will help Jews build a Jewish homeland as long as Jews do not have uh, create any prejudice or any um, any negative things or negative prejudice towards the civil and religious rights of any non-Jewish communities that live that currently live in Palestine. So that should say that if something was done on behalf of the Jews to take away religious or basic civil rights of, let's say, Arabs that lived in the area, then the, uh, his majesty would no longer be bowing his head and saying, yes, I agree with that. I should be grateful. This is continuing on. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. And then it's signed by Arthur, uh, Arthur Balfour. All right, let's, uh, let's look at the questions that come along with this. So if you guys have it, if you guys can locate it there, the Balfour Declaration questions. And we got three questions. So how did the British government respond to the Zionist goal of establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine? All right. What does it say that the king is going to do? All right. Yeah, the king looked in favor of helping the Zionists achieve a uh, Jewish homeland and that the king was going to facilitate the process. So not only did the British government agree to the Zionists building a a home there, but also said that they would facilitate the process. It would make it easy or easier for the Jewish people to have their own homeland. Number two, what conditions did the British expect the Zionists to meet? Well, the the British in that clause that we, we read, the British are saying that they will bow their head, but that the Jewish people cannot prejudice any civil or religious rights, uh, or prejudge, or pass pre, preju- um, uh, prejudice upon people who live there and take away their civil or their religious rights. All right, that was the big condition that the British set in there. And the number three, making inferences, Zionists such as Lord Rothschilds were pleased by the letter from Balfour. How do you think Muslim residents of Palestine might have responded to Balfour's letter? All right. So on one side, here's a letter saying, yeah, we, we, we absolutely agree that Jews should have this land. We should help build a homeland for the Jewish people. But if this is an argument that has two sides to the story, if you have Arab uh, Muslims on one side and you have Jewish um, um, Jews on the other side, well, how is the side, the other side going to take this letter? Right? They might say something like, well, wait a second, but we, we live on this land. How, how do you have the right to give the land that we live on to a another type of people. What right do you have? Well, the British might say, well, we fought in the war and we were the ones that liberated this area from the Ottoman rule. And so this land is under British mandate. It's a global mandate that the Treaty of Versailles says that we have the right to own it. And of course, then you have questions here, right? The, the British have stirred nationalistic sentiment in the area to tell the Arabs that they deserve a land of their own, a land of their own. And then the British say, well, the French and us, we have the right to own this land. So it is your land, but it's really our land. That, that's a catch-22, right? That doesn't make any sense. You can't say things like that. And then eventually hand over land to someone else. So if definitely the Muslim residents of Palestine are not going to be too happy with the events that are taking place at the tail end of World War I, liberating this land from Ottoman rule, being told that 
Arabs that live in the area should own this land. And then all of a sudden a rogue letter pops out of nowhere saying that this land is actually going to be used in part, doesn't say it's all going to be taken, but this land will be used in part to help create a Jewish homeland. Probably not going to make the Muslim Arabs that live in the area all too happy. Okay, moving on. Let's go back to the um, back to the slides. All right, so 1917 was the last slide that we were on. Let's look at post-World War II. That's the next slide that you'll see here. 1945 to 1947, many Jewish survivors of the Holocaust leave Europe for Palestine. Okay, so between 1917 and 1945, we've talked about this in class. We have the Great Depression that hits. We have the rise of Nazism and fascism in Europe. Eventually, the Nazis are going to target the Jewish people for the, um, the final solution, the eradication of the Jewish people. Those Jews who do survive, and we're not just talking about Zionists who are tired of being treated as second-class citizens, and these are Jews who have survived mass slaughter. They've survived genocide, and now they've had enough of living in an anti-Semitic continent. And so they decide in mass that they're going to leave Europe. So between 45 and 47, huge amounts of Jews are going to be leaving Europe and heading towards Palestine, looking to create a homeland. And one of the arguments that they do have in their back pocket is the Balfour Declaration of 1917, saying that England is bowing their heads and saying, yes, that this land belongs to the Jewish people or that England will help facilitate the creation of a Jewish state. All right. In 1947, the UN, uh, the United Nations proposes the dividing of land into a Jewish state and a Palestinian state because as Jewish population started to increase, uh, Arabs started asking the question, why are there more Jewish people coming here? Are they taking over our land? And of course, tension started to increase and you had violence between both sides. Now, if you notice in parentheses on the 1947, it says many nations, including the United States, felt great sympathy towards Jews because of the Holocaust. And maybe perhaps because of the Holocaust, that enabled or I don't want to say forced, but uh, the, the sympathy votes directed towards Israel might have been augmented or increased during that time because of the Holocaust. And that's usually an argument that oftentimes a lot of uh, Arabs use against the Jews to say, well, the only reason they gave you a state was because of the Holocaust. Um, so there, there might be that portion. To, to argue. But once again, then the Jews might come back and say, well, wait a second, before that 1917, the British who owned this land said, and it, once again, it's an argument that goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So if you're taking a, a look, and those are some images of ships that are coming from Europe where it says the uh, the name of the ship and it says Jewish state, these people are headed. I mean, if you realize that, I mean, it is a jammed, packed ship of European Jews wanting to get the hell out of Europe. They're tired of living in that continent to find a homeland for themselves. And even the the image that you have down here at the bottom, you notice a couple of those guys are wearing fatigues. Those are still Holocaust fatigues that those guys have. Um, so you know, here we are talking about a people who have have risked their lives. Their lives were almost taken. And now they have an opportunity for a new life and a new life outside of Europe, a new life potentially in what they might consider a homeland of their own. So 1947, if we go to the guys, go to the next slide. 1947, the UN is going to pr propose a partition. Partition means a separation, just like we talked about a partition of the land in India, the partition that created India and then eventually Pakistan and East Bangladesh. Partition means to separate. If you're cutting an apple into two parts, partition means to separate. So the proposal says that 55% of the land would be given to Jews. However, those Jews only number about 35% of the total population. And when many of the Arabs 
who already at that point had been saying, no, we don't want two states, we don't want two states. When the Arabs saw that the majority of land was going to be given to a minority population, then the uh, the Arabs said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. Of course, the Jews are voting yes. And the Jews would vote yes for anything. They'd vote yes. Uh, I think the argument at one point, or there's somebody who says that they would have voted yes if the uh, if the state of Israel was the size of a napkin. They would definitely have voted yes, right? For any land, anything they call their own where they can get away and have uh, an existence where they don't have to be treated as second-class citizens. So the Jews vote yes. The Palestinians vote no. And six neighboring Arab nations threaten war um, if the Jews declare in Israeli state. Right. And then in, night, in May of 1948, so there, there's no, um, there is no uh, agreement that is made, right? They want both sides to vote yes, they being the United Nations, but the Jews vote yes, the Palestinians vote no. And it becomes a real sticky situation for England, for the UN, for the world. And so people start backing off and saying, hey, look, we don't want to be in this mess anymore. And so we're going to let the Arabs and the Israelis figure it out. And so on May 14th, 1948, Israel is declared a state. They declare themselves a state. And the very next day, the six neighboring Arab nations declare war on Israel and invade. So May 14th is, let's say, like the 4th of July, the birth date of the nation of Israel. And then May 15th is the first war that is declared between Israel and the Arab surrounding Arab states. And the maps that you guys see on the next couple of slides, uh, this is once again just to show you kind of the way that land was supposed to be partitioned. Because Jews didn't all live in one area, and the Arabs didn't all live in one area, and then you had a mixture of different populations. If you notice, the part that is in is shaded in kind of that, uh, I guess not the white color, but the, the gray color, that was the land that had majority, not all, but majority uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jews that lived in the uh, in the area. That was supposed to be the Jewish state. And so if you're looking at the map from the top right-hand side, where it says, uh, what is that, Lake Tiberias, um, you have areas that have a huge amount of Arab people. Uh, in, uh, I believe it's Safid or Safad, you have 90%, 97% of the population or the 90s, or 87% of the population is actually Arab, but those would then be a predominantly Arab city in a Jewish state. And if you continue down, you have minority Jews in Tiberias, you have minority uh, Jews and majority Arabs that live in Baisan, and then you'd have this kind of interacting area, kind of like this crossroads just south of Nazareth, and then you'd have the Jewish state that would continue along the coastline with Haifa and Tel Aviv and Jaffa. And then all of a sudden it would go back along the coastline down south where it says Gaza, where if you notice 98% bottom left-hand side, 98% of the people who live in Gaza are Arabs. And then in the middle, the, the white section, not the shaded color, but the white section that was supposed to be the Arab state is where primarily the Arabs lived. But if you notice those circles, they have Arabs everywhere. Right? There's not one city that has 100% Jews that live in there. All right? Some of the cities are you know, like 85. Tel Aviv is probably the largest as I'm looking at this. has the largest group of, uh, of Jews. Haifa has only 47. And so when the Arab populations looked at this and said, wait a second, you're giving the majority of the land to the minority of the people, that doesn't seem to be uh, fair. If we're talking about fair is fair. Eventually at some point, fair is not going to be fair anymore. They don't, I mean, even if it was fair, even if it was pure 50, 50, 
um, a lot of the Arabs are basically saying, no, it's no longer we want half. We want all. We don't want the Jews here anymore. All the Jews are saying, oh, we'll take whatever, you can, we, whatever we can get. The, um, the next image that you're going to see, once again, is still a map. And uh, this one shows you percentages of the Jewish state and the Arab state, the same one that you saw a moment ago. But this shows you um, the, the same partition but I believe it shows you how many people lived in the area as far as others. So you have Jews, you have Arabs, and then you have other people who live in the area as well. But still, it, it makes it difficult. How do you have a crossroads of people to say that, for example, we're looking at this, that there are three distinct areas of a state of Israel, and you have to cross a bridge in the north, and you have to cross a bridge in the south in order to cross over. And same thing for Arabs. They would have to cross, let's say, from the Gaza Strip over to the, uh, the West Bank and then north going up into Nazareth. Uh, and so it would be difficult, let's say. And then what do you do with Jerusalem? Jerusalem has a Jewish population and has an Arab, uh, Arab population. And the Arabs want Jerusalem as their capital and the Jews want Jerusalem as their capital, potentially. It becomes a, a mess there. All right, so in, like I said, 1947, or I'm sorry, 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war is declared and you want to make sure that uh, you're on the next slide here, not the map, but it says the conflicts and resolutions. So this is where um, I'm going to stop the narration for a little bit. You guys are going to go and access the PDF file. Uh, chapter 18, Section 4, Conflicts in the Middle East. This is a cause and effects chart. So you have the action. right? You have to write on the left-hand side what caused that action and then what were the effects. And oftentimes these are wars that you're going to see. So by effects, what was the outcome of the war? who won, who lost, what land was surrendered, what land was taken. Oftentimes, uh, you'll see that. The the two at the bottom, however, are going to be uh, resolutions. So they're going to be agreements between uh, the Arab side and Israel. And so for the effects might be the outcome of that resolution or the outcome of that decree or that accord. So you guys are looking at 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war, 1956, the Arab-Israeli war, 1967, the Six-Day War, which lasted six days. Very good, kids. 1973, you got the War of Yom Kippur. And then you have the Camp David Accords and the Principles of Declaration. So we'll stop the narration now, and you guys can have some time to work on that. And then we'll look at some aspects of this and uh, what changed in those years. All right, go ahead and go. All right, so hopefully you guys have completed the cause and effects chart using the PDF file from the, uh, the textbook. Remember that you had to scroll down quite a few pages in order to locate the information. Uh, let's continue a little bit on with the slides and we'll talk about a, a couple of these, but not all of them, but a couple of these. Um, the first images that you see here after the conflict and resolution slide should show a couple of guys um, next to a gas machine and says, sorry, no gasoline. And then another one says gas shortage, uh, sales limited to 10 gallons of gas per customer. During the uh, War of Yom Kippur in 1973, um, the uh, the Arab nations uh, had a surprise attack on Israel, and um, as part of a way to put pressure on Israel, um, the predominant Arab nations who are part of OPEC. OPEC are the is a um, is a group of nations around the world that are oil producing nations. Uh, and many of those nations happen to be in the Middle East, not all of them, but many of them are, they decided to place an oil embargo against the United States, meaning that they refused to sell oil 
to the United States and gasoline to the United States. And with that oil embargo, that meant that we had to figure out how to survive in the 1970s with limited supplies of gasoline. And so hence, that's why you see those pictures that say, sorry, no gasoline. And this is at a time, 1973, this is where the... Um, the Vietnam War was coming to a conclusion. Um, this does not feel in the 1970s like a great time to be an American. People were down in their luck, and you know, nations across the world were finding out innovative ways to kind of challenge our authority and challenge our support of our allies across the world. Um, so some of the things that took place during that gas sort uh, shortage, um, if you if you had a automobile whose um, license plate ended with an even number. You could only get gasoline on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you had a an odd number, it ended with an odd number, then you could only go on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And sun, sometimes Sundays was a jolly day, was open for everybody. And sometimes Sunday was a day where nobody <laughs> could go uh, because there wasn't any oil. And sometimes gasoline, you know, the, the actual shops were completely closed. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see sometimes it worked where if you had a green flag, everybody was welcome. If you had a yellow flag, then it was only commercial because they wanted the economy to continue. So trucks and cars that needed to get from point A to point B had priority. And then red flag meant that there was no gas. So there's no need to stop at the gasoline station. There's none to be had. And then on the right-hand side, you can see the huge amount of lines trying to go to get gasoline. Uh, my parents would tell me that my, my uncle Paul, um, well, I mean, everybody would do this, but my uncle Paul would do this as well, that he had to... Um, had to gauge on his, with his car, how far his car could go, right? So if he had to go from, let's say he gassed up on Monday and his, you know, he had, um, his car ended with a, uh, an, an even number. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, he could gas up on that next Monday. But if he happened to drive a little bit further, you know, if Sunday was not open, then he risked going from Friday having to go from Friday to Monday without any gasoline or potentially not being able to drive anywhere. So you really had to look at your car. And these are, of course, not gas efficient cars. These are gas guzzling cars of the 70s. And so you had to look at your car and, and start to judge and say, well, how much gasoline do I have in order to get me to that next Monday? Do I have enough or do I need to go now or today or tonight? Or is there going to be enough gasoline today or tonight? Um, the gas shortage definitely did hit Americans uh, pretty hard, but once again, that's not the only thing that was happening in the 1970s here that made life a little bit uh, difficult to live. Uh, moving on to the next slide, uh, this comes in 1979. Egypt and Israel will sign what is known as the Camp David Accords. This is probably the biggest sign of hope in this conflict that uh, at that point was lasting you know, 30 years. So in 1979, Egypt and Israel signed the Camp David Accords. It's the first peace agreement. Uh, between both sides, and I'll say both sides kind of loosely, between in, in, in the Egyptian state, the state of Egypt, or the nation of Egypt, and Israel. Now, notice I'm not saying it was an agreement between the Arabs and Israel. Egypt, who had for the most part been the main nation who had fought, or the main um, Arab state that fought against Israel or led the Arab states against Israel, in 1979, uh, the leader of Egypt, and there is Anwar Sadat next to President Carter. He is the, um, the, the taller, balding man, so the guy without glasses on the left-hand side. Uh, he's had enough of it. Egypt has had enough of it, and uh, he decides that he is going to be the first Arab state and uh, openly declare peace 
with Israel. And Israel sits down and the Camp David Accords are signed in 1979. Some land swaps are, are taking place and it seems to be that at least Egypt is out of the conflict. They don't want to have a you know part with the uh, Israeli conflict. Now that does not come all too great with, uh, or doesn't sit well with a lot of the Arab nations who see um, Anwar Sadat as a traitor. Sometimes even his own people saw him as a traitor. And I believe it was either 1979 or 1980 or 81 that eventually he is going to be assassinated uh, by his own uh, Egyptians, if I'm not mistaken. He was at a soccer stadium looking at a military parade when a couple of guys who had their Russian-issued AK-47s that were supposed to be empty broke file. Um, They had full clips and they started firing in the direction of the crowd where Anwar Sadat was located. And then eventually he was killed because of that. So here you have a man who is killed by his own side, not Israel, but a man who's killed by his own side when that man decided that he was going to take one of the first steps towards peace. And that makes the conflict even more sinister because if you've had enough of the death and the slaughter, you've had enough of the years of trauma and seeing your own people suffer or seeing your neighbor suffer, and you finally say, look, I've had enough of this. I want to move on. Well, there are some people who don't want to move on. There are some people who remember the taste of blood. There are some people who remember how their uncle, their aunt, their their son, their daughter, their uh, brother or sister were killed in the conflict. And, you know, an old saying that says that blood calls blood. And uh, if, if somebody is killed on your side, that means somebody on their side has to be killed. And then, you know, an eye, an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. I think that's also part of, of this. You know, at, at what point are people going to get so fed up with the amount of blood and conflict in the area that both sides are going to you know, have to step forward and say, okay, we've had enough. But it's difficult because there's always going to be people who say, no, peace, peace is not a requirement. There's always a need for, for violence. Another sign of hope, if you guys go to the next slide, comes in 1993 with the Oslo Peace Accords. Um, that is, I believe, Monaghan Begin, who is shaking the hand of um, the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, Yasser Arafat. Um, I, I don't think he's Palestinian. I think he's Jordanian, I, I believe. Um, and that is President Clinton there in the middle. Um, the agreement granted Palestinians the idea of self-rule in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Um, and this is seen once again as a major sign of hope with the peace accords, but it, it doesn't last for too long because once the Oslo peace accords are, are signed, there are going to be rocket attacks on um, from Palestinians over from like the Gaza Strip into um, Israel. Israel will, will um, end up dropping uh, bombs or missiles into uh, some of the cities and children are going to be killed and it just goes back and forth and back and forth. So even though we put signs of hope here, I'll put signs of hope on the slide. It's it's one of those things where it's a brief moment of hope and then unfortunately the viciousness of man continues. All right, second to last slide. Uh, where do they stand today? Where's the conflict today here? Well, despite the signs of hope, it seems to be an unresolvable conflict. And that's not to say that I don't hope it gets resolved. I mean, I've, I've been on this earth since 1977. And since I've been here, that's, you know, it's always been the Middle East conflict, the Middle East conflict, the Middle East conflict. And after a while, you get tired of it. I'm not even in the conflict and I'm getting tired of it. And so I can, I can only imagine, I can only imagine for those people who have lost individuals and, and have a, uh, an entrenched feeling in the conflict, how they must feel. But it just seems to be that as the years go on, there's always increased violence. There's always something, another issue that pops up. 
second bullet point says two possible states. Could there be a Palestine ruled by Palestinians and Israel is allowed to rule themselves and continue as an independent state without the risk of terror uh, or terrorist operations against them? Um, some people say no, that there's no way that they can have a two-state uh, solution. Uh, some people say no, one state is the only route to go and that state needs to be Israel. And then some people say, no, one state, Israel, but Palestinians have to have full voting rights and being treated as equals. And it goes back and forth. There are still issues um, that are currently going on. The area that is the um, the West Bank in the center of the, the map that you guys saw at the very beginning, there's still a lot of Jewish organizations around the world that go into those areas and build uh, Jewish community, homes for Jewish communities, uh, kibbutzes, uh, areas uh, where the, the Jews control. Um, and it's not supposed to be on, it's not Israeli territory, it's Palestinian territory. But um, some of these groups are allowed to do so. Some of these groups are not allowed to be there. Sometimes Israel will go in and destroy these homes and push the Jewish people out. Sometimes they don't push the Jewish people out of the Palestinian areas. And so, of course, that leads to more conflict and tension. Is Israel really stating by those types of actions that Palestinians do have a land of their own if they're allowing Israelis and Jewish people to come into Palestine and build their own homes and build their little villages and towns there. Um, and even Monaghan Begin, I believe, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, is also going to be assassinated during this. Um, the guy who's shaking hands with Yasser Arafat, he also you know, shook hands and tried to initiate a peace agreement and then kicked out some of the um, Jewish settlers in the Palestinian areas. And as a consequence of that, he lost his life. He was shot and killed coming off of a stage, I think on national television, he was singing a song and he was assassinated as he was walking off the stage. Um, refugee camps um, are, are still exist in many of these areas outside of Palestine. You have refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, and uh, I'm not sure about Syria. There might be some in Syria or Egypt. And in these areas, you have, as refugees, people who once lived in the areas of Palestine, but when Israel declared itself a state, many of these people left, uh, and then they never went back, or they never were allowed back, whichever argument you want to look at. And so in many of these refugee camps, because there's no hope there's no education. There's no hope for the future. These become a perfect area for terrorist groups to go in and propagandize the individuals and uh, help breed this hatred of Israel, uh, this hatred of the United States, because we support Israel um, and give these people something to live for. And that might be to kill or to you know, sacrifice their own life for their Arab people or for their Palestinian uh, people. And it just seems to go back and forth and back and forth. The last slide that you have here, it says middle ground video. Uh, the video that you're going to watch is about 20 minutes or so. And there are four questions. So the first question says, um, this is, these are six, um, six individuals, six um, people from Israel, Palestine area. Three of them are Israelis. Three of them are Palestinians. And they're, this is a group known as middle ground. They do videos like this all the time. And they're going to ask a question. They're going to have the six individuals stand back. And as they ask a question, whoever wants to answer it steps forward and they sit down and they can go back and forth. Um, or if it's one person, um, they'll give their reason why. And then the rest of the group, the five or four individuals who didn't sit down, they'll come in and they'll participate in the conversation. And so um, it's, it's really a, a cool video, especially it shows you the kind of the, 
the back and forth approach of the arguments on you know why the Jews believe that they're here and while the Palestinians or Jews believe it's their land or the Palestinians say it's their land. So the first question says the first statement in the episode is someone I know has died because of this conflict. All right, what stories are shared by the participants? You don't have to share all of them, but you can give an indication of um, which individuals lost their their family or their loved ones, who was killed, how were they killed, something like that. Number two says, when the statement, I believe in a two-state solution is possible, or I believe a two-state solution is possible, was stated, only one individual stepped forward to argue for a two-state solution. What were the arguments of the other people who believed in a one-state solution? Number three, um, what is the last question slash event that takes place in this middle ground episode? And then what does this event, your answer for number three, help do for the participants? I think this is a major event that takes place at the end of the middle ground episode um, as a way of of kind of creating a, a finality of the debate and a finality of the middle ground episode. All right. That concludes the, uh, the podcast. That concludes the uh, the notes. So remember that for this lesson, you have three parts that you're going to be submitting. You're going to be submitting the questions to the Balfour Declaration that we first uh, did. We I think we completed all three of those questions together. That's 50 points. You also have the um, causes and effects, chapter 18, section four, conflicts in the Middle East um, sheet that you need to submit. It has the seven questions on it, causes and effects. And then the middle ground video, you want to watch that and answer the four questions. So whatever it is that you're submitting, submitting, they're all Google Docs to make sure you answer the questions and then submit those. Uh, If you guys have any questions regarding anything, any lesson, present, uh, current, present, or or current, present, that's the same thing, uh, or past, please let me know. Remember that this is the last assignment. You will have a quiz. The quiz is all ready to go. It'll be, it'll be uh, put online uh, in a little bit, if not today, maybe tomorrow. And you have until the 25th to submit this lesson. Uh, the 25th through the 1st of June, that is the time for you guys to make up any late or missing assignments. Please, please try to get as much of it done as possible. This was an agreement that all the teachers um voted on, or at least leadership voted on, that we wanted to give you guys an opportunity to take at least the last week of school to submit as much of the work that you might have missed as possible. So if you're looking at your grades and you, you realize that maybe you, you don't want to see, you want to be, believe, believe me, there's plenty of students in just my class alone that haven't submitted work. Let's get that stuff in. If you have friends, for example, text them. Tell them, hey, get some work in. Make sure that they get that grade up. I know it, it seems so close to the end, and uh, you know sometimes... Um, there's a basic unwillingness to want to work. There's, you don't have that, that drive anymore. Try to fight past it. All right. You guys are better than this. You guys are a lot better than this. We can't, I don't care if it's a week, a a minute, a day, a second left. If you got a moment to get, uh, exert some energy to get some work in, please do that. All right. Things are eventually going to change and there will be, you know, a back to normalcy in the future. When that future is, I don't know, but we don't want to lose, uh, lose hope and just kind of give up on the uh, the workload. So please complete, complete, complete. And like I said, if there's any questions, let me know. Get a get a hold of me. Send me a remind. Send me an email. Whatever you need to get uh, a hold of me about, I'll try to get back to you guys as soon as possible. All right. Thank you so much, guys. Um, and um, I'll send out some more information regarding some late work at a later point. Okay. Take care, everybody.